six weeks until a new Mexican government takes over, ending a five-month transition period. What do we know now that we didn't know on July 1st? I'm Richard Miles, host of 35 West, and here to help me answer that question is Pamela Starr, a professor of international relations at the University of Southern California and a senior associate at CSIS. Welcome back, Pamela. Thank you. It's great to be back. So, um, Pam, you were on the show back in mid-March, and and I went back and listened to that episode, and we speculated on, at the time, this is uh, mid-March, March 15th, we, we speculated on a, a NAFTA withdrawal, of course, because the negotiations had just done a, a, got started at that point. We talked about steel tariffs, retaliatory tariffs, uh, a failed counter-narcotic strategy, and then the future of security cooperation. And then I was very interested, obviously, in, in AMLO, because even in March, we sort of had a hint that he was going to win. And so I asked you a few questions about AMLO, and let me just um, uh, read back to you some of your quotes you said. Um, uh, so, the, you know, the disadvantage of a podcast, of course, we've got it all on tape, and so we, we there's a record here, a paper trail. But um, anyway, you said you said that um, I'd asked you, you asked you about AMLO and sort of what, what your expectations uh, were of him, of Lopez Obrador. And you said, um, Lopez Obrador won't come out with the intention of undermining the relationship with the U.S. in any area, um, but he will not let the U.S. get get in the way of his agenda. And then you said he would go forward with amnesty, for instance, if he thought that was the way to go. Um, and then you said the biggest fear among observers was that we don't know what we're going to get. Uh, will it be the nationalist, Lopez Obrador, or will it be the sober-minded politician, Lopez Obrador? So now fast forward to seven months later, or, you know, uh, what, about three months after the election, and we know a little bit more, um, but my question to you is sort of how much more do we know in terms of um, have we seen policy priorities take shape since July 1st? And if so, what, you know, which policies are clearer now, which are murkier? Um, and then, you know, has he gotten any sort of pushback? Recognizing, of course, he's not actually in power. We know that. Uh, so he can sort of afford to do a lot of things um, without you know, necessarily accountability. But in your view, what do we know now that, that we didn't know, say, the day before the election? Well, what's clear now is that he's got a very clear legislative agenda, and he's got a very large majority. Um, his coalition holds a majority in both houses of Congress, so that he'll be able to get his legislative agenda through. And indeed, um, the lower house has already approved legislation to terminate pensions for past presidents and cut the salaries of the high-ranking bureaucrats in Mexico. So he does have this 12-point legislative agenda, which we now know exactly what he's pushing forward. And it's not surprising things for López Obrador. It's things like raising the minimum wage, raising uh, judicial penalty, penalties for corruption and electoral fraud, um, having a binding referendum on the performance of the president and governors, make it easier to have a plebiscite. And also he wants to create and uh, recreate the Secretariat for Public Security um, and concentrate all of the forces, uh, civil, civilian forces, working um, in, in, in public security in this one administration. A lot of the stuff that he was talking about during the campaign. Um, in terms of his ability to get these things done, there's really been no pushback at all because not only does he have a massive majority um, in both houses of Congress, but the opposition is profoundly weak. Um, both the, um, the PRI and the PAN, the, the, the two parties that had sort of rotated um, uh, in power over the last 18 years of Mexican democracy, were really um, lost badly in the July election. 
Um, and as a result, both parties are sort of licking their wounds and trying to figure out how they regroup. Um, they're also facing internal divisions, um, which makes it very difficult for them to um, put forward a, a decent um, um, opposition. Their focus is going to be on the Senate where Lopez Obrador doesn't, his party itself doesn't have a majority and he doesn't have a two thirds majority. And they're hoping they can block constitutional reforms there, but I don't expect them to provide a lot of pushback. In terms of security policy um, with the United States, do we have any sense of whether he's going to approach this sort of from a, a cooperative standpoint, um, kind of sort of continuing or tweaking or at least consulting with the U.S., or is this going to be more of a confrontational stance regarding how we fight uh, narcotics in particular? Given what he said since he's won the election, it suggests to me that we're gonna have a more cooperative relationship. As candidate, he was emphasizing the need to focus on community building, uh, fighting poverty as the key to his security strategy. My understanding, however, is that once um, he was shared the intelligence information of what actually is Mexico, he was rather taken aback and realized that there's no way that he can pull the military out of the fight against organized crime in the near term. He still has an aim to do it in three years, but he had originally hoped to do it initially upon taking the presidency. Um, and he under understands the extent to which US intelligence has been important in that process. So my sense is at least in the near term, there is going to be the potential conflict that we saw possibilities for um, prior to his actual election. So as the saying goes, you know, personnel is, is policy. And, and we discussed this on the last, last podcast because, you know, unlike a lot of candidates, uh, Lopez Obrador sort of announced his entire cabinet, I think back in, was it December or January, very early um, by Mexican standards, by any standards. And I remember we talked about this in March and we were both a little bit, uh, I guess, underwhelmed maybe in terms of the, his picks. Um, have, have any of those... Uh, and I know he made at least one swap out, right? Foreign minister is going to be Hector Vasconcelos, and now it's Marcelo Ebrard. Have any of those uh, candidates or, you know, cabinet officers to be, um, what have they said or what, what do we know about their thinking in terms of what sort of policies they want to bring to their respective portfolios? What we know is that in general, he's, he has two types of selections. He has selected a number of people who are highly respected quite capable and just ready to do their jobs. The most striking the most standout of those is as foreign minister. And my sense is that Lopez Obrador, for all intents and purposes, is going to let Ebrard be almost a co-president in the area of foreign affairs. Marcelo will have his, his uh, portfolio of dealing with international affairs and preventing international affairs from getting in the way of what Lopez Obrador really wants to do, which is is restructuring of, of, of uh, the domestic economy so that it focuses on the of Mexican society. Equally at the finance ministry, Carlos Ursura and his sub-cabinet are again, well-respected economists who are seen as capable um, and uh, not all of them have a great deal of experience in government, but nevertheless, they're seen as individuals who can really handle the jobs um, that, that are before them. 
Um, and of course, his chief of cha staff, Alfonso Romo, is considered to be a moderating force on Lopez Obrador. But there's another whole piece of the cabinet um, where some of them are well-respected academics, but not clear how they're going to operate in government because they don't have experience. This would include Graciela Marquez at, at, uh, in the economy ministry. And then there is his, his energy appointments, which are all ideological picks. They're not well-respected um, in the energy sector. They're not considered very capable, and there's very serious concerns about their capacity to do their jobs and do them effectively. Um, so it's a real mix of what we have in terms of his personnel selections. So this seems, on the energy uh, front, this seems to be setting up a, maybe an internal conflict early on, because on the one hand, or depending on, on the person that's quoted or the day of the week even, you know, energy experts all of a sudden are very optimistic that the, all the reforms are going to stay in place and Mexico is still going to sort of drive forward. And then on other days, or particularly when Rocionale is quoted, people have their doubts. Um, is, is there going to be a shakeout early on in a, in a Lopez Obrador uh, administration on the issue of energy? I don't think there's going to be a shakeout. Very clearly have two different perspectives um, within the administration. One that's a more status quo um, leave the energy reform as it is. And then you have the more radical perspective, which Nale is the leading proponent of, who has historically opposed the energy reform, just has Lopez Obrador, um, and would very much wants to focus more on building national capability as opposed to bringing in foreign investors. I think what they're going to do is square this circle by, in effect, um, accepting the foreign investment that has already been contracted through the but starting on December 1st, they're going to slow walk in for further implementation of the energy reform. They're going to probably take a breather and not have new um, uh, rounds of uh, um, auction to, to bid off um, new um, uh, production, uh, exploration and production um, fields, and, and instead focus more on what Pemex can do um, and bringing in foreign uh, partners for Pemex, but more capital relationship as opposed to um, sharing the exploration and production of fields. And then we'll see what year or two of this um, strategy of trying to slow walk the reform, then is when sort of the rubber hits the road. That's when they're going to have to make a decision of do we continue to go forward with these um, uh, the bidding process that allows for foreign direct investment in exploration and production, or do we leave it to, to Pemex, which is a very weakened firm and is not in a position to really um, take advantage of the um, uh, reserves that Mexico has at its disposal. So Pam, every single podcast I've done about Mexico over the last 15 months or so, I've had to talk about NAFTA, and this is no exception. We've <laughs> got to talk about NAFTA. Um, okay. And, and, of course, back in March, it was a much bigger deal because we were dealing in this uh, zone of uncertainty. We weren't sure if the United States was even going to stay in the deal. Um, and, of course, they signed their side deal or whatever you want to call it, Mexico first, and then Canada was added in. Now, um, of course, some people think this is not going to be necessarily a slam dunk to get through the U.S. Congress. But let's leave that aside for a moment and let's look at the Mexican political side. Um, of course, Lopez Obrador controls Congress, or he will, once he takes uh, takes office. Is there any chance that um, anyone in Congress uh, from the opposition, or even from his own party, are, is, is going to make even a symbolic show of 
you know, opposition to to NAFTA. And then, um, uh, and I guess a, a corollary to that question, does this end up being a net uh, positive for him politically, the fact that essentially it was a done deal before he takes office? Let me start with the second question first. Um, there's no question that this is the best outcome for López Obrador. Um, he has never supported NAFTA, but he also understands that the Mexican economy has depended enormously on uh, trade with the United States, and particularly in the auto sector, border production chains. Uh, an end to NAFTA would create all kinds of economic difficulties that he frankly wants to avoid. He's inheriting a very healthy economy, um, and that gives him a lot of flexibility in terms of managing his economic program in the first couple of years, three years that he's in office. So the best outcome for him was something that's economically stabilized, the NAFTA is. Uh, that said, he did not want to sign the agreement. He didn't want to put his name on something that he's long opposed. So the fact that, that Peña Nieto is going to sign it the day before López Obrador takes office is really the best outcome. Now, in terms of what's going to happen in the Mexican Senate, um, I don't doubt that there might be a couple of voices um, from, more, uh, from politicians who have a history of opposing um, the, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, but I don't think those are going to be voices that will be sufficient to hinder its um, a passage in the Senate. Um, not only does he have uh, control over his coalition, um, but uh, a lot of the um, members of the party that are now senators are not individuals who have a history in politics. They're not individuals who have a lot of autonomy um, and independent thought. And so they're going to um, march in lockstep with López Obrador. Um, plus the the National Action Party, which has long supported NAFTA, and the, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, they're going to find it difficult to vote against this. So I don't see Mexico, the Mexican government having any trouble getting this through the Mexican Senate. So let's turn back to the bilateral relationship um, itself. And, and one of the things that has surprised me and, and probably some other analysts as well is that the bilateral relationship is in actually pretty good shape given given the circumstances of the last year and a half and two years. Um, and so the question I get all the time, and I'm sure you probably do as well, is what what is um, what is the shape of the relationship look like between Lopez Obrador and President Trump? And and can you would you hazard a guess in terms of what would be could be the first bilateral crisis um, in the relationship and and you know roughly when would that occur? Yeah I mean as the, the media has reported, there is a surprisingly good relationship between López Obrador and Trump at this point. Um, for whatever reason, Trump has decided he likes López Obrador and thinks that he is something of a kindred spirit um, and um, has decided he wants to get on well with him. Um, that said, um, when we change administration, we'll lose that very close relationship between the Mexican foreign minister and Trump's son-in-law. And the, the role of Jared Kirchner can't be underestimated in terms of keeping the NAFTA negotiations on track of preventing Trump from withdrawing from the agreement several times that he was on the verge of doing so. So that um, the, it's not clear that Marcelo Obrard will have the same sort of relationship with Kirchner. 
So having that sort of backdoor relationship um, uh, between uh, a key uh, actor in the Mexican government and a key actor in the U.S. government, um, it could be a loss. We'll see how that plays out. But in terms of where we're apt to see a conflict in the relationship, in my mind, it has to do more than anything else with the treatment of Mexicans um, in the um, uh, in U.S. society and migration more broadly. Lopez Obrador, um, as uh, part of his campaign, argued about uh, the need for the Mexican government to come out more forcefully supporting uh, the interests and the needs of Mexicans in Mexican society, to the point where he called upon, called for a change in the Mexican consulate, consular structure, so that the consulates would become uh, largely entities that would just um, would protect the interests of immigrants as opposed to all of the other things they do. That receives a lot of pushback from um, uh, the foreign policy intellectual elite, as well as from um, within the consular network. So we'll see if he goes forward with that. But I think it's important because it's reflective of the importance he places on protecting the interests of Mexicans within U.S. society. And then there's the question of the Central American migrants. Um, López Obrador obviously would rather not have to deal with that issue. And he, uh, in his letter to uh, President Trump, laid out what his strategy is for dealing with that key bilateral issue, which is to uh, develop Central America um, using Lopez Obrador's thinking about the, the migration problem being based on uh, poverty and a lack of economic opportunity as opposed to um, uh, fear of personal um, uh, risk or um, fleeing uh, political persecution. So I think that um, right now the two sides are in something of a honeymoon period. But given the fact that the Trump administration is not very big on promoting economic development elsewhere in the world, I think that the, the two sides are apt to um, come into conflict over the Central American migrants. And it's a question of how much does Trump want to play this issue up in the midterm election and going forward, and how much López Obrador, how much political capital he wants to expend in protecting Mexican national sovereignty on this issue. So Pam, one final question, and that is about the, the predictions, I guess, about the personal relationship between López Obrador and, and Donald Trump. I mean, it strikes me that um, I, I don't I don't know Lopez Obrador, but uh, people who do know him have said that he's a very talented politician. He has a very good feel for reading the public, for reading other people, um, and sort of one of those classic politician gifts of connecting. Um, do you think has he? It seems like he's cracked the code, although it's not a real sophisticated code to Donald Trump, and that is that you know uh, flattery. And uh, soothing words will get you a lot, and confrontational criticism will will bring a, a ton of bricks on your head. Um, do, do you see this developing in when his, you know, he meets with Trump eventually or talks to him, uh, kind of like the Chinese have figured out, uh, you know, flattery basically as opposed to confrontation? Do you see that, or do you see Lopez Obrador sort of going back to what his instincts are, which are, you know, kind of to really, uh, you know, tell it. Tell it like it is, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Lopez Obrador is of two minds when he deals with the United States. I mean, one is the nationalist side of him that wants to protect Mexican 
national sovereignty that wants to protect um, uh, uh, or, or promote um, global respect for Mexico and to protect Mexicans living in the United States. But there's the other part of Lopez Obrador that really wants to prevent um, foreign affairs from um, encroaching on and hindering his ability to uh, promote his domestic economic agenda. That's what Lopez Obrador is all about. It's all about improving the lot in life for the majority of Mexicans, um, focusing on um, uh, rejiggering um, the economic strategy to do so. And so I think that his first reaction with regard to, to Trump would be to try to flatter him in an effort to prevent um, any kind of um, conflict between the United States and Mexico. Should Trump uh, persist in Mexico and Mexicans, um, that could generate a response from Mexico at some point. I think um, he's going to be something like a Peña Nieto in the sense that he's going to be hesitant to respond forcefully to uh, Trump's uh, harsh rhetoric. Um, but I think that he also is going to um, have to do so than Peña Nieto was because you have the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, tr- agreement signed um, that gives Mexico more flexibility to do so. Plus, Lopez himself is more of a nationalist than Peña Nieto ever was. That said, what I hear from people inside and around the Trump administration is that Donald Trump is done bashing Mexico. He's now moved on and he's focusing on China. Um, uh, his rhetoric has softened significantly over the last six months with regard to Mexico and Mexicans. Um, so we'll have to see how that goes forward. But if it's true that he softened his rhetoric, that gives Lopez Obrador a lot more uh, room for maneuver in the bilateral relationship. Well, Pam, we got to hope if this becomes a normal, boring relationship, both you and I are probably out of jobs. So we got, you know, if Mexico becomes Canada, no one's going to want to hear what we have to say. So um, this is a this is a great conversation. I I know we'll be talking again. And my goal is to get to an episode that is completely NAFTA free, which we don't even utter the words NAFTA or USMCA, whatever it ends up being called. But um, thanks very much for joining me. and, And I hope to have you back on. It was a pleasure. 